0: I greet you this morning in the name of Jesus the Christ on this first Sunday of Lent. It's so good to see all of you gathered here in the Faith and Arts Center, along with those who are joining us online. Our Lenten worship series is highlighting the adventures of a biblical superhero of faith, Daniel. He epitomized the best of the Jewish religion and faithful living. The stories of his life became the stuff of folk legend in the Jewish faith. He was George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Paul Bunyan, all rolled into one. Even his name, Daniel, means God Judges. In Hebrew, E-L means God. And you see it in a number of different biblical names, Israel, Gabriel, Michael, Emmanuel. As we look at Hebrew scripture today and over the coming weeks, Part of what we'll learn is that it is divided into three major categories. There is the law, the prophets, and the writings. The prophets are further subdivided into two major groups. There are the major prophets and the minor prophets. It's not based on content, but length. The major prophets in the Bible are longer books. The minor prophets in the Bible are shorter books, and it is admittedly a strange, bizarre way to rank and assort prophets. Daniel was the last of the major prophets, and as you're searching through your Bible today to try to find him, he is between Ezekiel and Hosea. Daniel has 12 chapters. Chapters 1 through 6 highlight the adventures of Daniel and his friends. Daniel 7 through 12 has these strange apocalyptic visions of the final days. We'll spend most of our time in Daniel 1 through 6. And I encourage you over the next days, read one chapter a day. By Saturday, you can finish that first section. If you're feeling really brave, read 7 through 12. Just don't expect me to explain it. The absolute heart of Daniel is found in chapter 4, verse 17, where it says, the most high God is sovereign over all the kings on earth. To put that in a shorter way, God rules. Whatever we face as a church or as individuals, God rules. And today's sermon is Daniel versus the world. And our scripture lesson from Daniel chapter 1, beginning with verse 1, gives a brief history lesson from 605 B.C. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Aspenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, the chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name of Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Amen. Daniel chapter 1 only hints at the tragedy of this catastrophic moment in Judah's history. It barely gives us a glimpse of the death, the suffering, the pain of this moment. Judah was the last remnants of David and Solomon's once magnificent realm. And this marked the beginning of the end. King Nebuchadnezzar brought his kings to Jerusalem. They besieged the city and overthrew it. And then he desecrated the temple, the very center of Jewish faith. He stripped it of its furnishings and sent them back to Babylonia to be placed in his God's temple. And the dispirited Jews felt as if God had abandoned them and they were all alone. Then in a classic tactic of the ancient Near East, Nebuchadnezzar also ordered the best and brightest of the Jewish nobility and leadership to be sent back to Babylonia. He stripped the land of any leadership that might lead to a revolt or a revolution. And then King Nebuchadnezzar ordered his chief of staff to select an elite group of Jewish men. Handsome, no defect, young, quick to learn, And they were to be schooled for three years in the language and literature of the land. The intent was to transform them from Hebrew men into Persian citizens. And at the end of this time, they would enter into the king's service. It was a blatant attempt at indoctrination and assimilation. To make these young men forget the past and to embrace the future, to forget their God and to serve other gods and the king instead. Among this group, there were four Jewish men, Daniel and three of his friends. And one of the first acts the chief official did was to give them new names. Rather than their Hebrew name, they were given Persian names. It would mark them as belonging to the king and starting a new era in life. Daniel became Belteshazzar. Remember how we said Daniel in Hebrew means God judges? Baal or Baal to Shazzar. Baal was the idol of the Persian people. And it meant Baal protects. Daniel became Belteshazzar, Hananiah became Shadrach, Mishael became Meshach, and Azariah became Abednego, and yes, I've spent all week practicing those names. And you know what? It kind of, sort of worked. We still remember Daniel by his Hebrew name, but our children have heard stories about his friends before, they've done a musical about them before, and they know their names as Shadrach. Meshach, Abednego, their Persian names. Nebuchadnezzar ordered this group to be fed from his own table. It was a high sign of privilege and of place, literally fattening them up for the king's service. They would get the richest of foods and the finest of wines. Daniel approached the official over the group and asked if he and his friends could have a different diet instead. The official loved Daniel, but feared the king, and he said, Look, if I do this, and y'all look malnourished, it will be my head. So Daniel proposed a simple experiment. For ten days, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would eat simple vegetables and drink plain water rather than the fine meats and wines of the king's table. And the official agreed, and at the end of ten days, Daniel and his friends looked healthier and better nourished than all the rest. And so the official agreed that he would allow it to continue. You read the story, and the question arises is, why was food so important to Daniel? He risked royal disfavor, even perhaps capital punishment. The one who served the king was afraid he would be beheaded. And yet this was a critical point for Daniel. If you read Hebrew scripture before, you know that part of the covenant that God made with the Jews was that they were to follow a different food regime, a different diet. And there were some foods that were clean and others that were unclean. Some were deemed edible and others inedible. For example, Keeping kosher, as we would say it today, meant they could not eat pork. They could not eat venison, shrimp, certain cuts of beef, or meat and milk served together. When you read the guidelines, looking back thousands of years, you can make a case that at least some of them might have had some health benefits. But others, you cannot really say they promoted well-being The reality is that when God chose Israel to be God's people, he declared them holy. And holy means to be set apart for God's use, to be different from the world around them. And one of the ways that distinguished the Jews from others was their diet. And that was one of the primary purposes of it to begin with. And Daniel was unwilling to to abandon his Jewish faith for pagan culture. And yes, it was a relatively small act of rebellion to go against the king's wishes in terms of food and drink. But that small choice he made will be reflected in greater acts of faithfulness later. And one commentary on this biblical passage called this moment the cuisine of revolution because Daniel dared to stand against the king. A span of 2,600 years and 6,700 miles separates ancient Babylonia from modern Buckhead. But God's people continue to face and to wrestle with the temptations of indoctrination and assimilation. Our society constantly tells us if you want to get along, go along, don't rock the boat, don't stand out. And yet you compare and contrast that attitude towards Jesus' call for us to be a light on the hill in a world that prefers darkness, to be salt in a society that's on a salt-free diet, that when we are out in the world, others ought to be able to see the difference through our thoughts, our minds, our attitudes, our actions, our words, because we belong to another. We follow Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. One author wrote that the church that marries the spirit of this age will be a widow in the next. As I was preparing for the sermon, I found myself recognizing the fact that I've gotten to that age where I recall the good old days, Part of the reason it's easy to recall the good old days is enough years have passed that you forget about the bad in the bad old days. But I was thinking about some of the changes I've seen in culture and church, and some of you will be able to empathize with this. When I was a child, blue laws were still common in the South. Most businesses could not legally open on Sunday, it was seen as a time that was Sabbath, set apart for church, set apart for family. Fast forward decades later, Sunday is just another day of the week. And here, clearly, I'm not saying that we ought to go back in time and reinstitute blue laws. Attempts to legislate religious practice never work well. But I do wonder what it would look like for us as God's people to take seriously the Lord's command to keep Sabbath what would it look like for us as individuals and as families? If God thinks it's important, then we think it's important too. I also thought about regular church attendance. In the 50s and somewhat into the 60s, when somebody moved especially into a smaller new town, they were expected to find a church to belong to. And it was the rule of thumb when I was beginning ministry that regardless of what your church's membership number was, About one-third of that number would be at church on any given Sunday. And of those at church and worship on Sunday, about half of those would go to Sunday school. 2024, we have seen regular church attendance defined downwards. Where it was once Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, it's now become for many once a month, once a quarter, with some small groups sprinkled in between... And we have so many different claims upon our time, our passions, that we find ourselves pulled apart and pulled away. You've heard me talk before about our changing attitudes towards children and worship. As a young child, my experience was we sat with our parents in worship. And then as time went on in my late childhood and early teens, a children's church became much more popular where children might have a children's time on the stage, but then they would go out to their separate time, and that morphed into seeing larger mega churches create totally separate experiences for children and for adults. And you walk into the door, and children go one way, and adults go the other. And here, clearly, I'm not criticizing how other people do their work in the local church, because everybody has their own culture, their own vision, their own passion for what they're doing. But four years ago, we made a decision to be countercultural here at Northside and to create a dedicated Sunday school hour and include and encourage children in worship. And it came from my own personal conviction, I share with some of you, that we have raised generations of children who do not know what it means to worship with their family. And we act surprised when, as young adults, they're not involved in church and we have raised generations of adults who have not been involved in Sunday school, and we have got amazing small group ministries scattered throughout the week, and I affirm those, and they are an amazing part of our church's ministry, but as Sunday school, oftentimes that is the first point people stick and get involved, and it's especially a place where couples tend to stick and get involved with others their age that they want to do life together. I also thought about how our attitude towards sports has changed over the past decades. When I was growing up, we never had practice or games on Sunday morning. It just wasn't even thought of. And you can make a pretty strong case that today sports has become the new religion of our society for children, youth, and adults. And it's a, we, we had the struggle when our child was playing baseball. With travel ball, what do you do when there are tournaments on a weekend and you have church obligations as well? And how do you balance those things? And part of what I appreciate about our sports and rec ministry is that it honors that desire to be involved in sports and the benefits it brings, but within the context of the Christian faith. And there are moments when on Sunday mornings, I will see parents come in with their children dressed in their uniforms because they've got games that afternoon. And I'll have some parents approach, and they're, they're kind of embarrassed almost. And I'm like, are you kidding? This is great. You have shown your child what is important, what your priorities are. You have gotten them to church, and then they can go on to do the other activities of their life. If you need Bill Birch's permission for your child to bring a, wear their sport uniform to church, bring them on. In so many different ways, we have seen how the church and our culture have battled in this struggle of assimilation and incorporation. But it also occurs in our individual lives. That we are a fallen people living in a sinful world, and because we are carnal creatures, what appeals to our five senses, we naturally gravitate towards. And Paul reminded us, that the sinful mind is hostile to the mind of God, and that our Lord has to remake us into the image of Jesus Christ. And part of that means changing our minds, changing our attitudes, our entire approach to life. It's like taking off old, soiled clothing and putting on new, clean clothing. We cast aside the things of this world. We put on the things of God, and we learn to focus on what's important And eternal and holy listen to Paul's words in Philippians 4 verse 8 whatever is true whatever is noble whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is admirable if anything is excellent or praiseworthy think on these things now I would encourage you to consider that verse in the coming week And use it as a standard of what are the thoughts going through your mind and do they line up with what God calls us to focus upon? Because so often we settle for the worldly rather than the heavenly and for the least rather than the most. Daniel resisted the Babylonian temptation to indoctrination and assimilation and it began in the small choice of food. But Daniel understood that small choices have a way of becoming big choices and that those little decisions we make along the way ultimately determine the way we go when we get to a major crossroads or fork in the road. We too need to watch for those small decisions and where they might lead. I took clinical pastoral education in seminary and a supervisor shared with me a word of wisdom That I continue to share today, if you've been here six and a half years, you've heard me share it repeatedly. He looked us in the eye and he said, remember, seduction always begins with flirtation. Seduction always begins with flirtation. In every area of life, it begins with simply flirting with the idea. And then it becomes something more. Dr. James Johnson is writing his devotionals on the Sermon on the Mount, and part of what Jesus warned about is that our thought life can be just as bad as the deeds that we commit. But Jesus also recognized that our thought life tends to lead to the deeds. St. Thomas Akempis, in his classic devotion, The Imitation of Christ, wrote this. He said, we need especially to be on our guard at the very onset of Temptation. For it's then the enemy might be most easily overcome if he's not allowed to enter the gates of the mind. He must be repulsed at the threshold as soon as he knocks. Listen to this progression and see if it rings true. For first there comes into the mind an evil thought, then a vivid picture, then delight and urge to evil, and finally consent. In this way, the enemy gradually gains complete Mastery when he's not resisted at first. And the longer the slothful delay resistance, the weaker they become, and the stronger the enemy grows against them. Food and drink didn't seem like a very big decision, but it set the stage in Daniel's life. And we face those small choices over and over again for ourselves, our family, and our congregation whether to assimilate with society or to stand for Christ. The results? Well, Daniel tells us these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds to literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams. And at the end of the time, set by the king to be brought into his service, the chief official presented to Nebuchadnezzar all these men, and the king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And note, by the way, the use of their Hebrew names. It was Daniel versus the world. And through God, Daniel won. And it's not an overstatement for me to say today, for each one of us here, for every one of our families, for this congregation, for the church with a capital C, it is us versus the world. And in small choices and in large decisions, we're called to choose for our Lord because God reigns. Let us pray. Almighty God, hear the prayer of your people this day as we come before you. We know what it means to deal with trials and tribulations and temptations of this world. To have the world's message beat over and over and over again into our hearing and into our minds and into our souls. Lord, grant us your strength to stand strong, to stand for you, to be a people who recognize the small decisions are not really small because each choice leads us closer to you or farther away. You have promised to make us more than conquerors in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So like Daniel, as we find ourselves facing the world, help us not to be afraid, because you reign, you rule. In Christ's name we make our prayer. Amen.